Welcome to A Little Too Quiet. It's the Ferndale Library podcast. It's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. And my name is Jeff, and I'm joined by Greg Black. Hey, Greg. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me on the show today. I appreciate it. So happy to have you because you are bringing your Oscars presentation back to the library, which I'm very excited for. If memory serves, I think we did it in February of 2020, early February 2020, I think. Yeah, the waning days of the old life. That's right. The world we were about, we were unexpectedly about to enter. And I think we still squeezed in. There was a proper Oscar ceremony that year, the whole shebang, theater and lights and et cetera. But uh, after that, things got weird and then they came back and then they got weird again. Anyway, <laughs> I'd like to start just like to give folks a, a little bit of a preview of, of what they can anticipate on March 7th when you come to the library, but then also kind of tell us a bit about how you got into this you've been doing oscars presentations around the region and often at libraries too for several years before this so i don't know just tell us about that say hello to the folks at home hey folks at home hey <laughs> ferndalians i'm a i'm a former ferndalian myself for a few years so uh always exciting to come to your guys's library and be back to my old stomping grounds a little bit so yeah you know it's it's funny how this all started i i went to film school at eastern michigan worked in video production of some form or another ever since then work in PEG programming now, public access television. Cool. And uh, been a lifelong movie fan. Always wanted to do something with movies, whether it was one day, you know, when I was real young, I wanted to go to business school to own a video store one day. And luckily, the world kind of shook that out before I had a chance to to do that, because I don't know, that would have been the smartest career move. But mm -hmm. uh, I've always loved video stores, perusing them when I was a kid. I've loved watching movies. I was obsessed with the Siskel and Ebert show when I was a kid. So, so yeah, I ended up pursuing film school, been working in video production. And uh, my now mother-in-law used to work at a library and suggested that I do some sort of program related to movies. Hey, one thing led to another. And now I'm going all over the place to different libraries. And I call myself a film enthusiast when I describe this to people. I am a graduate with a film degree, but I'm not a film proper film critic. I'm not a proper film historian. But I, I dabble in the interest of all those things. And I certainly think that um, I have some interesting opinions and insights. And I just love to share the love of movies with other people. So even if there's a movie nominated for Best Picture that I don't particularly love, I try to focus on what do we like about it? Why should we be excited about the movies other, other, over other art forms? So That is excellent. And I'm an, yeah. and I'm an enthusiast as well. But I've often been i just i'm uh, how else can i put this but i've always just been a sucker for the oscars i always watch the oscars i can't resist the oscars i think there's just something tantalizing about it all and there's often a lot of drama there's often a lot of politics uh there's often a lot of gossip there's often a lot of tension and i do think that i that i tap into that but i think that you know i went to film school as well but before i did that I think that I, like a lot of people, were I was kind of just fascinated with celebrity and there were these beautiful people up on stage and they made these wonderful movies and there was all the glamour to it. Then I went to film school and I started appreciating film as an art form rather than just uh, a conveyor of celebrity. You're going to be coming to the library. You're going to be talking about this year's Best Picture nominees. And without even looking at notes, folks, I'm going to try this right now. Greg, just spot me on this. I believe we have hmm, Women Talking, Top right. Gun, Maverick, Elvis, Triangle of Sadness, Banshees of Inishirin. Oh boy. Oh boy. I know. I know I'm going to get there. Oh gosh. Uh, everything. Color blue. Everything, okay. everywhere, all at once. Uh, nope. I haven't had enough coffee. Uh, that's all I got. That's all I got. <laughs> Think of the color trying. blue. Oh, yeah. Avatar. Yeah, we got, yeah, we got the Avatar sequel. Avatar um, sequel. The uh, Fablemans. Fablemans. Yes. 
Now yeah. I've lost count too. I think we're missing one in there. So tar. We'll, we'll get it in there tar, yes. And that was all 10. What I really wanted to do with you, because I can't resist these kinds of things, is kind of just look back almost 25 years, if at all possible, and just look back at what the heck has won, especially just from this idea of like, do these films, do they have staying power? Do they have a lasting impact? Do we even still talk about them? Does TBS even play them on the afternoon weekends? Like, is there, are they still in the, in the zeitgeist? And uh, for, you know, sometimes the answer is no, like the artist or Argo. And sometimes yes, the answer is yes, like there will be blood. But uh, I just wanted to look back and, um, and pick your brain on these things. And we're looking at a 25th-ish anniversary of kind of a scandalous moment in Best Picture Oscar history. And this is when Shakespeare in Love beats Saving Private Ryan. And let's just talk about that. Because don't you often find that too, Craig, that no matter how many nominees there are, it just comes down to like two or three. I find that interesting. Yeah, yeah. To piggyback on kind of where we started, you said that you've always just been sort of obsessed with the Oscars. Yeah. And I'm the same way. And we live in Detroit. So the example I always like to use, because it's very pertinent to us, is this is sort of like the Super Bowl for movies, yes. which is... You know, our team's never in it, but <laughs> so, but you still care. You like want to watch yeah. because uh, even if the ratings are kind of dwindling, it's still culturally relevant. It's a time where even casual moviegoers like want to see these movies because this is the highest esteemed organization that the world or that this, this country knows certainly about, you know, like what movies are important or why they're important. Right. And at the end of the day, this is a TV show, right? I mean, if it were just about what are the best movies, they just release a list and everybody would go check them out. But this is about <laughs> the excitement, the spectacle. There's a whole lot of stuff that goes in just beyond this. And, yeah. you know, looking back 25 years, whether we look at, you know, the, the 97 movies or we start with 98, those are two very important years because we start with Titanic, mm -hmm. which I believe is a record 11 Oscar wins, 14 nominations. I was a teenage boy, so I, it was a little bit harder for me to understand the spectacle at that time. I just remember loving when the boat sank. Um, but does it have staying power? It's actually in the top 10 at the box office right now, 26 years later. Peak Oscars program for me, formative, because we're pretty close in age. You have Titanic mm -hmm. winning all these awards, but you also have these other big contenders. As good as it gets is there, and it takes best actor and best actress. And you have Goodwill Hunting, so you get Robin Williams up on the stage. And then you also have LA Confidential, which is also a film people still talk about today. So it's a solid year. You also have the Full Monty in there, which I hear come up every once in a while, you know? Yeah, it's a good example of like a fun movie that really caught on with audiences. Right. And you understand it's sort of a thing that audiences are always kind of saying they want. Like, where's just like the you kind of like, you know, fun movie. But it's something that people have never really seen before. It's kind of this idea of, you know, exotic male dancers that don't really look like you know, it's like Magic Mike without the Magic Mike-ness of it all, you know. But, you know, then you move into 1998 and you have Saving Private Ryan, which I think everyone anticipated winning and is still, you know, regardless how you feel about the rest of the movie, the first 45 minutes is still considered this like incredible landmark achievement in filmmaking that's still being talked about and will be talked about. And something that really fascinates the core of movie going and movie watching for me is this idea of how movies inform our perception of the past or how things are. So I think if you were to ask the average person who didn't live through D-Day, what did D-Day look like and feel like, I bet their mind conjures the filmmaking style of Saving Private Ryan. That's incredibly powerful stuff. It's at the heart of you know the perception of what movies have to say about time and emotion related to history and our perception of what was and 
how it's remembered. So, yeah. and then you have Shakespeare in Love, which admittedly I've never seen. And the only time people talk about it is how criminally it stole the Oscar from Saving Private Ryan. And it's uh, tied up with the dark legacy of Harvey Weinstein, um, who is right. behind Miramax. And he is uh, pretty much agree that he went on some sort of, he turned the Oscars into some sort of blood sport and was like really aggressively, almost bad mouthing Saving Private Ryan and, and just trying to put so many ads and and cater to so many uh, members of the academy and convince them into voting for it and all this stuff yeah i this is just sort of uh going off memory but i believe he took out some sort of full page ad in the new york times i, I may even be associated with another movie that he ran the campaign for but that quote unquote broke the oscar rules right because right. even this year we have a little bit of controversy in the best actress category with someone who you know now we're so used to this award cycle where it feels like the oscars are are kind of predetermined before mm-hmm. they even happen. What makes this year exciting is most of the major categories, I think there's like one, two, sometimes even three ways you can kind of see it going. But they've had an investigation this year about what is, again, I'll say, quote unquote, legal, because I think Harvey Weinstein really brought this idea of like, how are these really the best movies if it's about how you campaign for them? And it kind of brought to light all the ways that probably have realistically always existed for people being like, hey, pick my movie, help my movie, think about me. You know, so that's that's a landmark year, I think, in terms of just people becoming aware of like it feeling sort of like criminal. It almost makes it feel more competitive too, like it's like it's tarnished the image of the award or something. Maybe in the 1950s or 60s, people are having similar conversations about other films as well, too. I mean, possibly. I think this is when a certain cynicism about the Oscars does start to to come in. I think that before this, there there was like a certain tension at the Oscars, and I think a lot of people back look back to the the sea change or changing of the guard in the late 60s when you have the Dennis Hopper types coming up against the John Wayne types and it's like new Hollywood is coming in and like, uh, you know, Bob Hope doesn't know what's going on. What 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 are these kids doing? But how are they, you know, how is Midnight Cowboy a good movie? Um, and the, that's the old guard. But this is like where it does get like kind of shady and political and what have you. And I, and I, th- we'll, we'll get back into that. We'll, we'll talk about, uh, we might get into stuff like Crash and, and Green Book later on in this chat, but... Sure. <laughs> I always phrase these talks, too. Rarely do I walk in the door with a slate of nominees where I'm like, some of these are actively bad, right? <laughs> they might not be my example of the things that I really look for, which is showing me something I haven't seen before, right. showing exceptional craft. You know, like, they may not be these, but they're not, like, inherently, incompetently structured movies mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. Now, some of them pop up. And that's kind of like, even if we look here, like coming into the 2000s, which is really like kind of my shining decade for yeah. like being in a movie theater like three times a week. You know, we're looking through like even some notable stuff that doesn't only really get nominated, you know, Gladiator won, but also thrown in there was Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Brought a lot of people to a subtitled international film that they probably would have never seen otherwise had it not garnered so much awards buzz. And, you know, at the time, I remember really being like, this could win the Oscar. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, for most of my life, we thought a foreign film's never going to win Best Picture. And then it happened a few years ago with a, a very worthy film. Right. But, you know, like A Beautiful Mind, good example of a movie, like loved it when I saw it in theater. Is it something that we remember fondly and really talk about? I would argue kind of no. Uh, but you look at Gosford Park, late Robert Altman movie, really interesting. Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, you know, all three of those films getting nominated. We're always saying, you know, like, where's the big crowd-pleasing blockbuster that everybody's seen? You've got that in there. You have Moulin Rouge, which is Baz Luhrmann's entrance into Oscar's conversation and he's nominated again. Well, yeah, his, his not, film is. 
Yeah, and Todd Field, uh, his first film in the bedroom, uh, was nominated as well, and he's back again. So, you know, it's exciting. You know, like, it's so easy to feel like there's a standard checklist of tropes that Oscar movies have to hit, and it's easy to compile a list that looks like it is. That's not always the case, and I always say the Oscars are a best-case scenario for arguing a point, and then they're always the easiest way to show how they saw nothing. So it's so easy to be like, Daniel Day-Lewis, greatest actor of our generation, three Oscar wins. Not many people can say that. And then you can just assembly go, Alfred Hitchcock never won an Oscar. What does this exactly. coding body know about anything? And, and what I always stress these talks is, as a historical record, what's most fascinating about the Oscars is, it's essentially what did industry professionals think were the best films in the moment, mm-hmm. right? That's a fascinating perspective to have because if we assume that movies are going to live in all perpetuity or some sort of you know visual media will live in all perpetuity, 500 years from now, this might be one of the records that people go back and say like, hey, if we're really going to look at the early days of film, the 1920s, 1930s, this is what the industry thought was groundbreaking, notable, worthy. Now, there's always going to be exceptions. Like uh, when we first talked about how we might kind of go about this conversation, my mind jumped to 1933, mm-hmm. which is a film that was not nominated for Best Picture and got no, I believe got no Oscar nominations was King Kong, right? And this is like a big box office hit in the middle of the Great Depression. I think it's a character that just about everybody knows whether or not they've seen the movie. Right. Groundbreaking special effects, kind of the epitome of Hollywood magic. And it didn't get nominated and everybody remembers it. Now, if you run down the list for that year. No one remembers Cavalcade. um, no one remembers Cavalcade. I can't even tell you what Cavalcade is, admittedly. I vaguely uh, remember the Little Women adaptation, uh, and that's about it for that year. Yeah, a lot of people know I'm a fugitive from a chain gang. Oh, so, yeah. You know, you ask people pre-1950, what movies do you know? And, you know, not not to have this in their pretension, but, you know, just kind of like the casual moviegoer. You know, you might hear King Kong. You might hear Wizard of Oz. You might hear Citizen Kane, things like that. Even more examples, you know, Citizen Kane's famous for not winning the Best Picture Oscar, despite we're then going on a journey for about 75 years of being critically considered the greatest movie ever made, right? Right. And, you know, one of the one of the things that's not so fun about these Oscar talks is I always have to kind of out myself for my blind spots, right? So it's like, I've never seen How Green Was My Valley, right? Right. And no one's telling me that it's, like, important. Right. Sort of like Shakespeare in Love. It's like, its footnote is, you know, that's the movie that beat Citizen Kane, and it's not Citizen Kane. So. Exactly. But for whatever reason, the industry at that time, whether it was resentment towards, you know, like a young cocky Orson Welles or just thinking that like a first time director doesn't get these awards, so they get the screenplay Oscar, the only one that Citizen Kane won. You know, it's kind of fascinating, right? Yeah. Um, Sight, and, Sight and Sound does a whatever dicentennial, what is what would every 10 years be called? But mm-hmm. Sight and Sound every 10 years does a... Um, greatest movies poll from critics and directors and most recent one just came out at the end of the year and uh citizen kane has dropped down i believe to number three or four on there but for six decades was number one so amongst critics who study the art form this has always been kind of like the epitome of filmmaking for whatever reasons you want to argue from its shooting technique to the things that i had to say about american politics and whatever it might be american media was sort of always at the top but the best pictures that industry in the moment said, nope, it's John, it's John Ford's How Green Was My Valley. And this is where we kind of dip into how the Oscars become political and how film criticism sometimes gets political. At least I'm not going to name names, but I know that a few people have stated objectively, like that list that you just mentioned that was just released where Citizen Kane is bumped down. Another thing that's 
of a lot of the changes on that list is something like a film like Chinatown is not even on the list anymore whatsoever at all. Directed by Roman Polanski, someone who is still actively wanted in the U.S. for crimes. And you know, he, I believe, wins Best Director for The Pianist in 2002. The Pianist doesn't take home Best Picture. But, you know, boy, howdy, these things, you know, in the way they age and in retrospect, it's just fascinating to look back on and how these are really sensitive and sometimes scandalous uh, subject to uh, to look back on as a historical record. Again, I think that's really fascinating, too, how you keep you, you brought that up. There's a movie this year that sort of wrestles with this very question, which is at the end of the day, you're left with the art. History is left with the art. That's tar. That's tar. That is tar. And I think that's a. It's, you know, not to uh, not to spoil the library talk, but it's yeah. one of it's in it's in the upper echelon of the nominees this year for me. Right. Um, uh, still kind of fascinated in wrestling with it, and I think one of the things that made it an excellent film in my mind is it is not vague about the questions it's asking. It operates in an element of ambiguity where you almost feel like it's telling you there's many answers to this question, mm-hmm. and in a way they're all right, and in a way they're all wrong. It kind of makes it a fascinating picture. So same thing, you know, Ilya Kazan received a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Oscars, and he named names to Huak, which oh, that seems is... unforgivable in a way, you know, but so some people didn't stand up and applaud for him. But right. is that because of what he did as a person? Or is it are you applauding his artistic talents in some movies that are undeniably great? That's you know? a perfectly good point about how the Oscars were political long before Rum Polanski and Chinatown and Pianist, they were they were political back in the 50s. And we have the Red Scare and we have McCarthyism and we have Dalton Trumbo. And you have all these rogues out there who are winning Academy Awards without their name and not even showing up to ceremonies because they're blacklisted. So, yes, yes, it's so juicy and dramatic and scandalous. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's and, one of the things that makes it compelling to watch, right? Yeah. But, you know, another another fun thing that I like to think about is that, again, going with the sort of like ingrained cynicism that kind of I feel like uh, generates after uh, Shakespeare in Love is that you have, I think it was a website or a long running kind of blog called This Had Oscar Buzz. Uh, you have these movies that feel like they are or they're at least being identified in the modern zeitgeist as being Oscar-y or catering to what they think the Academy will like. And, you know, I kind of that. I kind of think of movies like The Green Mile or or, uh, or Traffic or these these turn of the century movies trying to be Oscar-y. And sometimes it works and sometimes sometimes it doesn't. So 04 is a good year of that very thing that you're saying, which is let's kind of run through those five movies because they're a really interesting slate. Like Ray, Oscar winning performance by Jamie Foxx. But I think it's a lot of the beats that you expect from an Oscar movie based on a real person. So it's like, not only did he act, but he so incredibly mimicked, mm-hmm. you know, this performer that we all know. You've got Finding Neverland, which admittedly I haven't seen since I thought in the theater. And it's another example of a movie I like, but who's talking about it now? And it's got all those dramatic beats that you kind of associate with Oscar, Oscar bait. Mm-hmm. Aviator, Martin Scorsese movie, No Slouch, Leonardo DiCaprio, biggest movie star of our lifetimes, I'd argue. So again, historical picture based on a real person. And a, and a big swing um, for the fences performance. Big swing for the fences performance. Kate Blanchett's first Oscar playing a movie star that we all know, you know, notable transatlantic accent, nailing it. You know, um, a lot of stuff there. Then you got two kind of weird movies. You've got Sideways, very funny, very like character study driven movie with characters that don't make the best choices for themselves. Uh, and then you've got Million Dollar Baby, which I will not 
avoid going to spoilers, but like when you were in the movie theater and the things that happened in that movie happened, it's a notable example for me of like the air getting sucked out of a theater. Like very good example of like Oscar bait, Oscar bait, left turn. Yeah. What am I watching? Yeah. What's going to happen? And that and that ultimately won. So, uh, but you know, another Oscar favorite in Clint Eastwood. So, um, but but it, another interesting thing to look back on history and wonder what will Oscar nominations do? And you know, God love Paul Giamatti, but now he's playing Os- Albert Einstein in cell phone commercials. He used to be in these Academy Award nominated films, just like Sideways. You read my mind as soon as you said Paul Giamatti. I was like, here he is, is Albert Einstein. You know, phone phone rates. I hinged upon 98 as being a kind of scandalizing year for the Oscars as far as what won Best Picture. Uh, I can still tap into the shock I felt in 2005 when Jack Nicholson opened the envelope and he himself did not hide his own shock when he read that Crash would win Best Picture that year. A movie no one talks about. Well, if they do, it's it's very much in like a what a what were we thinking hindsight. Yeah, uh, and I think another controversial figure, controversial figure at the hum of it again too, um, which is a common theme that I guess just keeps coming up. But yeah. yeah, you know that's that's an interesting year too. I think that's another one where it's like how how can Crash win when you know Brokeback Mountains out there kind of like refiguring how people think about a, a well-known American genre, right? Right. Like, so this, this new approach to Western. And an incredible director, got, an incredible film, great performances across the board. Everything's working. Mm-hmm. And then you've got uh, Capote. Like, again, you know, you've got historical figure, you know, all the, all the things we're looking for, you know, distinct voice, another incredible actor. Um, you could argue as another person, I might make the greatest actor of my lifetime, Philip Seymour Hoffman, someone who I just always found incredible and interesting even if he's in something that seems a bit oscar Beatty, like Capote, it's oscar Beatty. yep it is it's a wonderful um, performance but it's oscar Beatty. yeah and then you know like even in along came polly like just oh, what's terrific. this guy doing here but you love it right terrific. people remember it they quote it still you know so uh and then you got kind of good night good luck good night and good luck kind of this like uh you know black and white uh non-traditional but still we're talking about a golden age of of news another figure that people know and you got Munich, more historical events. Uh, so it's, yeah, I, you said that moment. I More than anything, I really remember about Crash. I remember Jack Nicholson's face when exactly. he read that. Like, it kind of, you know, we have a, another moment like that later on where the wrong envelope was given, I believe. Yes. And But that's more confusion than, like, genuine, genuine shock. And I just miss, we need a new Jack Nicholson at the Oscars. We need a new... You need a new lifetime movie star to sit in the front row and kind of ham it up throughout the whole thing. Uh, and then, so then another thing that we talk about a lot with the Oscars is uh, why is this person winning for this thing now when they have had so many amazing things in the past that went overlooked? You know, you, we, and sometimes you can still say, well, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. It's got its merits. And I think that there are, there are a lot of people that still stand up for and defend the Departed by Martin Scorsese, which wins in 2006. Uh, but I still remember it feeling like a, though this is an overdue. This is a, this is a, <laughs> this, this is, is, this is a lifetime achievement award wrapped yeah. up in a best director nomination. This is a, uh, sorry about raging bull. Sorry about Goodfellas kind of situation. Yeah. Hey, you made taxi driver and didn't made, win. Hey, exactly. you made raging bull and didn't win. Hey, right. you made Goodfellas and didn't win, you know? Um, but when you look back at the nominees, I almost do feel like, well, maybe it was the best one. Like that's a year where I'm kind of on the fence, you know? 
Yeah, that's what I was thinking, you know, off the top of my head without looking at this list, would I have remembered these other nominees? I'm not even sure I would have. Um, I mean, Departed's, I mean, like you said, it's really entertaining. It's really well crafted. It's so weird that this famous New Yorker who makes these movies about New York won for his Boston movie. Um, His Boston movie that's a remake of a Chinese film, yeah, Infernal Affairs. Yeah. It's such a weird, yeah. Yeah. And then... But you know, it's a typical Scorsese movie, which is it's sort of a riff on the history of gangster movies with loaded references to everything from, you know, gangster movies in the 30s till till present day and it's immensely entertaining. But, you know, you rank your top 10 of his movies. You know, is there a chance that it slips in and kind of like that 8, 9, 10 slot? It's 8, 9, 10 for sure. Maybe, maybe, yeah. you know, but it's it's not. It's not The Taxi Driver. It's not The Goodfellas. It's not right. some of those other masterpieces that we all you know, know, love and respect. then we get to what I consider a banner year because across the board, I still, these five movies are talked about to this day. Um, tell me about some of these films or what they think. What, what do you think about 2007? Yeah, I was going to, I'm glad you brought it up. I agree with you. I would say that in my movie going lifetime, probably the best year at the movies ever. I think so. I like, think so. Yeah. Like if you had, now we have, a guaranteed 10 best picture nominees. If we had that, then you could have another five on there that I think you could make an argument are totally worthy of it. And it's an interesting year for me because in the moment, no country for old men was a clear cut winner Mm -hmm. because the things that make that movie great, I feel like are pretty inherent on first watch. Um, I saw that on Thanksgiving night, I believe when it came out and the theater was packed. You could hear a pen drop throughout several moments. It was so riveting, so exciting, so suspenseful. Um, I saw There Will Be Blood, and it ended, and everybody just kind of sat in the theater, and there was this kind of air of like, how do I, how do I process what I just watched, right? And then the night of the Oscar ceremony, I actually went to like an 11 a.m. show at my local AMC of There Will Be Blood, and I was like, all the things that I kept thinking about in the months I'd seen, I was like, this is just like incredible and it's funnier than I remembered it being the first time I saw it in the yes. theater. And it's a movie that like I continue to return to is like, it's up there with Inglorious Bastards. They're probably like my one, two for best movies of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Um, and No Country for Old Men is probably in the top 10. But on Oscar night, I was like, yeah, No Country for Old Men, home run. That's, it's clearly the best and it's the Coen brothers time and everything. But looking back, it's like There Will Be Blood was probably, if I could go back, I might say that's the best picture of that year. I, it's- um, like Titans, it felt like a grudge match. It felt like a boxing match that night between those two movies. I was so torn. Yeah, so, yeah and they were, you know, it's weird movie trivia about it, but they were both essentially shot in the same part of Texas. Like there's a famous story about, I think No Country for Men had to halt filming because of a smoke cloud from one of the oil drilling scenes in their really blood or something, you know? So it's like, there are these weird movies that are kind of combined at the hip and they both sort of speak to the... I think they kind of have the same message in a way, like they're really in conversation with one another, uh, but they go about it in two totally different ways, you know. But then the other the other nominees, like I still, there are still a lot of fans, especially here in this library, of Atonement, and just a lot of people hold up Atonement as being one of the best 
adaptations because it's really hard to adapt a book and sometimes it doesn't get it right and those are that is like universally agreed at this library and i think Mm -hmm. in a lot of like readers that uh that adaptation of the mackowin book is incredible and uh you you know you have two great you know hollywood stars at the at the lead you have michael clayton which is incredible and that's tony gilroy who i think has helped give us you know the highly acclaimed Andor series on Star Wars now and George Clooney incredible performance uh Tom Wilkinson I think and then uh Juno these are that's a solid batch of nominations still talked about today yeah and just I mean we could we could do another podcast on the road about 2007 and review I bet we come up with a list of honestly like close to 50 movies and have like a nice conversation about how great that year was absolutely and then yeah. we then we get another weird year where it's like I don't know about all these nominations uh, and I and I but I it's so strange Craig I remember going to see uh, Slumdog Millionaire and you know, which wins that year and it's Danny Boyle but I was such a Danny Boyle fan by that moment that I probably watched the film with rose colored glasses and obviously the Academy did too but you have other than that you have the Curious Case of Benjamin Button which is a Brad Pitt Kate Blanchett movie that I think oh man was that that wasn't david fincher was it i can't recall it sure was yeah interesting um, it's it's simultaneously very david finchery and like a real outlier from what he usually makes you know like it's it's got that kind of exacting nature to it but it's also that, that i just another movie that i haven't seen since i went to see it in its best picture run and I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about sense. Admittedly, oh, no. You know? Slumdog Millionaire, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Frost, Nixon, Milk, The Reader. All movies I only watched once, never saw ever again. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. Milk, to this day, I still haven't seen. It's another blind spot for me. But that was the race between Mickey Rourke and Sean Penn. That's and right. The, the rest there was, I, I wasn't around for Mickey Rourke's heyday as like the next marlon brando or whatever he was perceived to be Mm -hmm. so when he showed up in the wrestler he just blew me away you know i mentioned at the top that i've always wanted to have a career in movies i did have a brief period when i was a teenager where i thought i was going to go to business school to be a wrestling promoter because i do have a love for professional wrestling as well and i just thought he knowing some of these guys who were pro wrestlers when i was a kid and knowing where they were at now i just felt like he so captured their spirit and their drive to remain in a spotlight of some sort, no matter what. I thought it was a really incredible performance. So it's kind of a comeback story versus this guy who is a cat, you know, like always, always in the Academy's good graces. He's mm-hmm. always getting nominated, you know, Mystic River. I'm sure there's another one there too before Milk. And uh, I remember being kind of bummed that Mickey Rourke lost that one out. I but, know, Sean uh, Penn stole the Oscar from Mickey Rourke in 2008. He stole the Oscar from Bill Murray in 2003. Lost in translation. Uh, and you wonder like, oh, does it even really matter in hindsight? Now all Sean Penn does is, you know, he gets more into politics and he shows up for 10 minutes in licorice pizza. That's kind of all he does now. Um, yeah. But 2008 is the year where people said, hey, folks, or the popular opinion was, hey, why was The Dark Knight not nominated? Why do you not care about comic book movie that made $500 million at the box office? And then the Oscars are like, okay, well, we'll have 10 nominees now. And that's the first year in 2009. The year of Avatar, which doesn't win, but it's the first expanded slate. Yeah, I think overall, it's what I remember in the moment is you made the right choice by expanding the field because you get, you know, I said I approach this as a movie enthusiast, right? So Mm -hmm. there's more to talk about 
more to celebrate. Um, more to celebrate. I think that's worth saying. Yeah. 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 More to celebrate. Right. And then I remember feeling like we wanted a dark night in here and you could argue that avatar is a huge, sure. You know, blockbuster from it, but I don't think it's quite the same vein of like what we were looking for when people were like, where's our dark night S movie in here. So you really got kind of a weird slate of movies like, um, Oh, you know, there's some blockbuster. Yeah. You got blockbuster fair, like district nine, you know, like hard sci-fi movie. Um, you got avatar technological achievement. Um, the blind got, side is a crowd pleaser. A lot of people go see that. Yeah. Uh, up in the air, bit of a downer, but again, one of the biggest movie stars at the time, uh, leading a, you know, very adult drama, not surprised to see that in there. You see an animated film sneak in, which I think is becoming more commonplace, but was still pretty rare back then. I think, right. Beauty and the Beast and Toy Story before Up. I'm That's trying to think it. anything else got any yeah. Um A Serious Man, small Coen Brothers movie that they kind of got to make on the heels of the success of No Country for Old Men. Um, Precious, which I remember really taking everybody by storm when it came out, but again, something that I don't hear brought up that often. Um, you got Inglorious Bastards, which I mentioned earlier is probably being my pick for my favorite movie of the 21st century. Just really exciting stuff there. So. Again, really interesting crop of nominees, but when you look at, for example, this year's list of nominees, yeah. or you look at the year where like we had Black Panther, I think that's what people were, look, were looking for. Like, right. where's this huge blockbuster? How can a superhero movie not get in? These things that are dominating the box office, especially when they're critically respected the way something like Dark Knight or Black Panther was. Um, that's what people wanted. And I think you see that um, a little bit more the next year when you have The Inception, which was such a big movie in 2010 and you toy story three also such a big movie that year uh but wow it's so f weird to look back on this and remember oh man really the kids are all right was nominated for best picture uh i had no idea that julianne moore movie um that mark ruffalo movie the but what yeah that's so strange yeah i mean it's the the there's a there's a rule of thought that i agree with which is you get these 10 best picture nominees more to celebrate right but then you get five best director nominees right in a way you're saying this person crafted the best movie of the year so in a way that's sort of like your secret old school five picture slate best set of best picture nominees right so i like i don't think that i don't think don't quote is lisa cholodenko the director of the kids are all right off the top of my mm -hmm. head i i think i don't believe she was nominated and those are the ones that you're kind of like oh yeah i forgot that that was like in the mix yeah but just to let's just jump ahead and look at like these three not to go into like literally every nomination but like these three the king's speech winning in 2010 the artist winning in 2011 and argo winning in 2012. i'm that's when oscars really go three for three for me when it comes to we do not talk about these movies at all anymore they did not make a splash those that is a three-year dry spell for me the silent movie kind of homage artist king's speech which was like pure oscar bait I love the cast. I can say that. And I, I, I mostly like the director, but pure Oscar bait. And then Argo, also Oscar bait in its own little kind of way. We know Hollywood loves movies about itself. We love movies about movie makers. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it was at a time where like, everybody was really excited for Ben Affleck to sort right. of like, you know, go on this journey. Like, yeah. you know, I, I'm one of the few people you'll find that's like, hey, the artist is like secret great. I do love that oh, movie. Oh, interesting. I, I have returned to it. I hear a lot of people um, drag that movie. Yeah, everybody does. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I always feel like I'm the guy in the back of the room with his hand raised, which is like, I'll watch that movie right now if somebody wants That's to. That's great. <laughs> um, 
I, I, you know, for a movie that was so successful when it came out, I wish they would do more like repertory screenings now where silent, you know, like you could go see Nasratu at the Michigan theater, the Senate theater, and they'll have a live organ. Oh, let's yeah. see somebody do a, their own original score over uh, the artist. That and, would be great. You know, we, but maybe like you said, that perception of this movie is, is a wrongful winner might, you know, tarnish the ability to do something like that. But I always think that you know, yeah, a lot of people will say that about, about the artist. I think that a lot of people would say the front runner was probably tree of life. If not, yeah, probably tree of life that year, but who's to say now, uh, mm-hmm. man, 2013, one of like 12 years of life, amazing movie, amazing performances, amazing director. Uh, the rest of the nominees, when I really look at this, like, wow, what a, what a, like a rough year. What an emotionally rough year, 12 years of slave, captain Phillips, Dallas buyers club, uh, like I'm, and to an extent, Philomena and to an extent, Nebraska, I'm crying already. Like, oh my gosh, <laughs> what a rough yeah, you know, year. Like the most, the most exciting and feel good movie is arguably the one about the worst people in the Wolf of Wall Street. Exactly. You know? But like, you know, Oof. um, sort of like the most exuberant, exhilarating filmmaking of the bunch, but you know, yeah. despicable yeah. characters when you get down to it. Uh, and then, yeah, that, that's, yeah, go ahead. You know, another like odd year, like all those have the element of like, I could see why they would nominate this, but it is sure. It's another example of like, Hey, you got 10 movies and here's these 10 when, you know, with, would that year have been maybe like the Avengers or something could have snuck in there. I'm maybe. not sure. I'm, I'm maybe. Top of my head, but yeah. Nebraska gives us a supporting performance from Bob Odenkirk. You will go into glory later. Uh, and then 2014, mm-hmm. you talk about how the artist is, is dragged and no one likes it. I am also in the minority when I say that I like Birdman. I don't like to say it too loud in front of people, but it won in 2014. And I, but in in hindsight, I never thought it would win Best Picture. I'm so I'm like literally surprised. I I had a feeling that Birdman would take Best Director, and Linklater's Boyhood would take Best Picture. I thought that that was how it's going to be, but Birdman took both. Yeah, I'm I, I'm one of those people that in the background would be like, yeah, Birdman, not for me, right? Right. Um, and another slate of like in my mind i remember that got a few in here i really like whiplash mm-hmm. i think is really great um theory of everything classic oscar bait way too long yeah. just i don't think anybody's talking about it it gets the best actor um, though it gets the best actor though i mean again you know um relying on portraying someone that people know and then you know doing it with you know going for going the distance for it right selma i think as far as um Historical biopics go really good. Uh, Imitation Game is another example of like very enjoyable movie that I don't think or talk about very much anymore. But I remember liking it in the theater at the time. Right. Grand Budapest Hotel, arguably one of Wes Anderson's best. Boyhood, one of those like incredible achievements. I remember being really moved by it. Um, the way that Link later's obsessed with time and passing of time, I thought just great to see him finally get the some respect from the Academy there. Um, American Sniper controversial to say the least. Um, and then Birdman, which in a way is, I admire movies that swing for the fences, sure, try something new, really go for it, but it's, it's an example of one that didn't land for me, so. But you know, uh, Michael Keaton would see a little bit more glory, two years in a row, Spotlight wins, uh, mm-hmm. defeating The Big Short in 2015, Bridge of Spies, Brooklyn, Mad Max, Fury Road, The Martian, The Revenant, and Room. Uh, wow, yeah, I, I can't, I forgot Revenant was that long ago, 2015 already, the film where Leonardo DiCaprio finally wins Best Actor. The year of 2015 is remembered for me of Mad Max Fury Road cleaning it up on all the technical awards, 
even if it didn't get the big ones. <laughs> Incredible movie. It's just, I think that was a, that this is a good year for Oscar. Uh, if we're just saying a thumbs up, thumbs down, this is, this is a yeah, pretty, this is a, pretty solid list of nominees and good winners throughout the night. It's a solid slate. And yeah. also I think we see this a lot now, which is Mad Max gets, you know, like it seems like all the nominations, right? Right. And it stacks up all these technical awards. Um, and then, you know, you don't see any respect for George Miller or no. I don't even know if it had any acting nominations or not, but certainly the movie, I think you see it pop up as one of the top 10 of the decade all the time. It's sort of like, I feel like that and the social network are like the two that everybody hold up is like, one's sort of like this perfect dramatic piece and one's just this incredibly exciting piece of filmmaking that there there is some CGI and digital effects in it, but sure. really admired for its ability to try and make it feel real and be real. And then before we run out of time, I do still want to talk about the other, like there's probably two more setting aside the quote unquote, the slap. We're not going to get into that, but there are two more kind of scandalous moments in uh, Oscar's history. One of them interesting because it involves the envelope that's moonlight with La La Land. And the other one, which we'll get into next after that is kind of a reminiscent of the crash vibes when green book wins, but you know, uh, <laughs> Moonlight, uh, that was, you know, it's 10.59 p.m. Oscars are always late and this chaos happens. So that was a that was just a wild moment. Exciting TV for sure. Yeah. You know, it's also this period where I'm not sure the exact year off the top of my head, but this is around the time where we see the Oscars make an effort to expand their voting body. Ah, uh, yes. Not just a number, but, you know, this is around the time of Oscars so white. So it, it is this year. Diverse. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think the nominees from here on out start to get collectively more exciting mm -hmm. and my personal top 10 starts to get more reflected in the the oscar nominees yeah moonlight beautiful movie i feel it's it's such an awkward moment for everybody involved in that you know like i, I kind of feel I, I was trying to imagine what it would feel like to be in their shoes like kind of got this juggernaut feel good musical going up against you you're a little movie probably not really expecting it to feels win feels like a foregone conclusion like of course la la yeah. land will win yeah, yeah. and then it, it does win again, quote unquote, right. and you, you accept it. And then you sort of have to awkwardly go up there and like right. steal these other people, you know, like imagine it'll always be a bizarre moment for them. But yeah. you know, this, this is a, this is a perfect example of, you know, there's, there's one in here that I don't love, but otherwise I think we got eight nominees, seven of them are, are real good movies. You know, yeah. like I remember Moonlight finally arrival, I think is great. Um, Hell or High Water, really exciting, really good movie. Uh, La La Land. I enjoyed. I know it gets a little bit of backlash these days. Uh, Manchester by the Sea, really enjoyed. Great performance. Lion, I remember liking. Hidden Figures is fun. Axi Rage is the one where it gets a little. That's uh, Mel Gibson I, having his, um, you know, violence fetish. But then we get to. Yeah, uh, in a movie about a pacifist, no less. So. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and then again, 2018 is another year where it's like most of these are incredible, except for maybe I'll say two, um, two and a half. Uh, and the one that I never saw coming, Green Book, wins it, which is uh, really a regressive movie. Uh, and you really think, eh, maybe it's Black Panther. Maybe it's A Star is Born. Maybe it's Roma. Or maybe even it's Black Klansman. But out of nowhere, freaking Green Book wins it. I don't get it. It's a pretty solid year otherwise. Yeah, it is it is a really solid year. And you got like, so I, I alluded to this earlier, like, Black Panthers, when they expand the 10 nominees, that's what people are looking for. Like, you got this big superhero blockbuster movie that everybody's seen, kind of has this Afrofuturism angle that you don't really see in big mainstream cinema brought to the forefront. I think that won a lot of, uh, like, costume awards, secular awards and stuff, exciting action movie. 
Um, and then you have really Bohemian Rhapsody and Star is Born, which are like crowd pleasers, like popcorn movies, simultaneously also Oscar movies, Star is Born a little more successfully. But like those are movies that lots of people went to see. So which is a kind of a, a criticism lobbed at the Oscars like, oh, you're only going to nominate Banshees of Inisherin and Women Talking, things people didn't see. But these are big movies. Mm-hmm. You did. And then you have, you know, I think the thing that feels most egregious about Green Book um, which I'm not saying that, you know, I said sometimes there's movies that are actively bad. I don't know that Green Book's a movie I would describe as actively bad. Right. I think it knows the lane it's operating in. Right. Uh, but you, when you put it against a movie in Black Klansman, mm-hmm. which I think has, they're movies that are sort of in conversation with each right. other, right? And then you got Spike Lee, who made this very kind of like, the way that it's structured is really exciting and interesting. It's yeah. so of the moment. I feel like people will look back on it as like, this sort of speaks to the moment we were living in. And then you get the one that's like looking backwards, kind of sugarcoating some of the nastier stuff that used to happen. You Not know. to mention a flashback um, for a flashback for Spike from losing do the right thing to driving with Daisy. It feels like history repeating itself. Yeah, and you know, I it's a great example. Do the right thing in my top ten films of the '80s. You know, one of the great movies ever made, and I still have never seen Driving Miss Daisy because I don't hear it. When I went to film school, nobody was telling me like, you know, what you got to do is watch Driving Miss Daisy, and in the first month of my uh, American cinema studies class, we watched do the right thing. Cause it's yeah. like, here's one of the ones you got to see. Right. So, uh, so much to talk about. It's so fun to talk about, uh, but I have to leave it right there for now. And I just want to encourage everyone who is as jazzed about all this as we are to sign up right now for March 7th. Uh, yeah. You're looking forward to this, Greg, you're going to run through the trailers and you're basically, it's going to feel like this podcast episode. Greg is going to engage you uh, in the same way he just did through history with this year's top 10. It's going to be great. Yeah, the way I always, the way I always phrase it is uh, we're going to watch the trailers. And if you are just watching the Oscars because you want to see what people wear and you're hoping to win your Oscar party you know, bracket, I hope that you have a good time. I'll make it fun for you. And if your favorite, if you've seen every Jean-Luc Godard movie and you have strong opinions on them, I hope to offer some insights that are going to engage that guy too, right? So um, we're going to watch the trailers. We're going to talk about Oscar fun facts. I'm going to tell you what I like about them, what I don't like about them. But ultimately, we're going to celebrate the movies and remember why we love them so much. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, Greg. It's great to see you. And I look forward to seeing you at the library uh, very soon. Yeah, I think March 7th. That's right. See you then. That was my chat with Greg Black, who's going to be here at the library on March 7th, Tuesday evening. I think you've got enough time to mark your calendars, make plans, and be here. I have seen him give these presentations in prior years. They are very entertaining. They are very insightful. And if uh, you're as obsessed with the Oscars as both of us clearly are, you're going to have a good time. So we'll have information on that event in our show notes. So I hope that you check that out. And we say thank you, of course, to listening to another episode of A Little Too Quiet. It's the Ferndale Library podcast, and it's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. Thanks to John Duffy for giving us music to open and end each of these episodes. And we would encourage you to visit ferndalefriends.org if you'd like to support this podcast. But you could also just rate, review, and subscribe. We'll be back next week with more. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.